Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. In reality, what we're looking at, at least over the next century or so, I would say, is not just this sort of sudden mass extinction event, but a slow and painful you know, collapse of our society. So really what I'm looking at is, well, how do we kind of continue some thread of who we are and what we are through that? You know, it, it's through whatever that is, that kind of dark age or uh, that 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 time in the desert, if you want to get Jewish about it. Uh-huh. You know, those two generations who have to live between the two civilizations. What does that look like? And, you know, and so far, I don't think we're thinking about how to wind down the civilization in the least catastrophic, the least painful ways. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Douglas, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I have known about your work for quite some time. In fact, I've quoted uh, your other books in my own books uh, and have been a big fan. So I've been really looking forward to this and talking about Team Human, particularly because these so concepts are so relevant to the world we live in. But before we get into all of that, uh, I would like to start by asking, what did your parents do for work and how did that end up in flat impacting the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? Um, well, my uh, dad was a uh, an accountant originally. And um, it's funny, he kept turning down these opportunities to become kind of like really wealthy because, you know, accounting, it started out, you just do like bookkeeping for a, you know, a bodega, you know, or whatever the Jewish equivalent was of bodegas in the South Bronx in the 1950s. And um, then you work for one of these firms, like they, they had weird names then, like Leitersdorf and Ernst and Winnie, but now they're like the big financial firms have these, you know, they're famous, like, uh, 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 what are they called? Like, uh, I don't know if you've heard of these. There's like the big five firms and they do all the audits for um, yeah. like Booz Allen and uh-huh. things like that. And they're, and they're all zillionaires. Right, and right. rather than going that way, he ended up, he um, did an audit for a hospital at uh, Mount Sinai hospital in New York. And he found like a hundred thousand dollars that they didn't realize they had in some account that there was some, someone, you know, crossed off the wrong thing off a of, sheet. So he found this $100,000 that they didn't know. And then they asked him to come be the controller there, which is like a, you know, a money counter person. And he just liked being in, you know, something close to the public health sector, you know, doing something that was sort of good for the world because accounting is, is a dark art when it comes right down to it. You know, you're, you're kind of trying to fool the government or fool the bank that you have something that you don't, or that you don't have something that you do. And if you're going to do the dark arts of accounting, I mean, if there were no dark arts, you'd just have machines do it. It's creative. 
Um, mm-hmm. he, I think he figured he might as well do it for a good thing, like this hospital that's desperate, you know, for money to have have funding to give methadone to addicts and stuff. Um, so I think that influenced me in that I could uh, uh, I couldn't bring myself to do a sellout profession, that I had to do something that felt like it was for the public good or public service or, you know, not just because I'm guilty, which I am, but, but because, uh, uh, I, I admired that, you know, my brother went into, into the law, but he didn't become some rich lawyer. He works for, you know, the, 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 the government trying to protect consumers from fraud and lies and stuff like those kind of fake contests and telemarketers. And so he's trying to use his legal skills to protect the public from bad. And I'm trying to use my, my literary or, or whatever skills these are to kind of, you know, make human beings more aware of the various systems and forces that are trying to control our consciousness. And, uh, so I kind of see that coming from there. You know, my mom went to pharmacy school just because I guess it seemed cool but she never became a pharmacist. She uh, became, in the long run, she became a psychiatric social worker doing like past life regression hypnosis with people. So I don't even know if that was real or not, but <laughs> you find out, you know, like some person who's suffering from asthma, they would go into a prior life and see that they were like being smothered under a you know, a, a stack of furniture during the Russian Revolution. And once they experience all that, then they let it go and, you know, get to have an asthma-free life after that. So I don't know how many people it actually truly long-term worked on, but it's kind of it's kind of occult in its yeah. in its weird way. Yeah, totally. So, you know, uh, you mentioned, you know, growing up uh, in a Jewish family, I believe. And I, I wonder, you know, and I've asked this people to, I've had other people who are Jewish here on the show as well, you know, like as an oh, Indian good. kid. The, had a few. The- Some of your best <laughs> friends were even Jewish. I'm well, not the first Jew. I'm not the first unmistakably creative Jew on your show. I'm glad no, to know. Well, the, the, you know, the reason I, I I always wonder this with with people who have, you know, from what I've heard, growing up in a Jewish community is much not much different than growing up with Indian parents in that you're encouraged to pursue certain career paths. Uh, doctor, that, lawyer, doctor, yeah, lawyer, there you go. doctor, doctor, lawyer, engineer, <laughs> engineer got added. Clean recently work, because, clean you know, work. I know yeah. we are. It's very similar. It's a real. It, it, but you know, we're we're don't tell Jesus, but J- Judaism's based on on Indian religion. You know. <laughs> it is. They that's where they got it. They went up there and they came back. You know, the Essenes and everyone else. They went to India and, and that's how they came to understand um their original understanding of of God or how to have a God that was kind of a top God but compatible. You don't have to get rid of all the other gods. I uh-huh. mean later the Jews decided no, one God and one God alone. But for yeah. a long time it had that sort of that much more I hate to use a word like this, but much more tolerant understanding of other gods as part of this great pantheon of gods, but your God is the best for you, you know, yeah. and, and everyone else is okay. They uh-huh. got that. And they, the whole idea of an app of sort of the, the abstracting of, of God also they got from, from Indians, but wow. we don't, so, we don't give them credit. Yeah. Career advice wise, did your parents have the same sort of standard, you know, uh, Indian parent career advice? Of, oh yeah. You know, I allowed secure, to you're go- I was allowed from 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 seventh grade. I found out that yeah. I could go to any college I wanted as long as it was Harvard, Princeton, or Yale, <laughs> and I could study anything I wanted in college as long as I finished the pre med requirements. Uh-huh. 
Because <laughs> I figured they figured they were paying for this. And even if I was going to be some kind of weird theater person that uh, uh-huh. that 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 I would always be able to still then just apply and go to medical school. So yeah. if I went to Harvard, Princeton or Yale and had decent grades and all my pre-med requirements, then I could go do theater for three or four years, find out that it's a horrible life and go back and become a doctor like I'm supposed to. My brother okay. became a lawyer. So <laughs> my sister became a doctor. So we have yeah, that in common. There you go. So doctor was free. Yeah. But uh, no, but then, I mean, I mean, they were worried about me for years, but you know, after I kind of sold my first book, book advance, I think they realized, yeah, you know, oh, okay. He's, he's doing something there that, you know, there, there, someone out there is recognizing that he's onto some, something important. Yeah, well, we we both share that parallel journey as well. I think that both our parents probably would have the same story. Out of your parents' checkboxes, how many of those did you actually check off? Because I went to Berkeley, which was not Harvard, Princeton, or Yale, but close enough as far as uh, my so I went to Princeton, and I did all the pre-med requirements by the sophomore year. Okay. And then did well, not look back. So when did uh, the path to what you're doing today actually begin then? Depends, you know, it depends how you look at it. I mean, during my organic chemistry test in college, during one of my organic chemistry tests, I kind of stopped in the middle and wrote this letter to myself saying, I'm going to make a decision for you now. You know, you are just not going to friggin'. I stopped taking the test because I figured I would fail this test and then close that door to, to my future. So I wrote this letter to myself about, uh, you know, you're going to go into theater or something creative. You can't do this to yourself. This is not your, this is not your path. I mean, not that medicine's not creative, but at least the way I understood just going and being a doctor um, was going to be a, a very sort of auto mechanic approach. It, mm-hmm. it was what was seemingly available to me, you know, become yeah. some kind of heart surgeon doing routine, you know, uh, uh, surgeries. It's the way it looked to me anyway. Yeah. And, uh, so I wrote that letter to myself thinking, okay, now you're going to fail. And the funny thing was they graded that test on a curve. And apparently I was really good in Orgo and it was so hard for other people. I ended up getting an A minus on this test that I had only done like the first two thirds or three quarters of before just stopping and writing this heartfelt note, you know, to myself, as to the adult Rushkoff. It was really funny. Mm. So, but that was the turning point. And then I decided it was all theater, you Uh know, and, and I did theater till really I was around 30 or so. And, um, it just started to feel, it was really, you know, 28, 29, 30, I started to write. And then the, uh, theater felt elitist and expensive and, uh, it felt somewhat limited to, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, stories that could be told with a kind of a beginning, middle, and an ending, very Aristotelian stuff and uh, very cathartic. And the internet was just happening and it seemed interactive and participatory and more egalitarian and open. And uh, so I just couldn't help but kind of pursue what was happening there as, you know, I was getting to to witness, you know, the dawn of a, of a new era. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I wonder how you navigate the periods of uncertainty in your life. Because Stephen Kotler and I have talked about this. He said, you know, basically for anybody who wants to make a living as a creative, he said there are basically three fail points. Either one, it's they can't endure the the poverty and the uncertainty that come at the beginning, which sucks. Uh, there's no sugarcoating that. The next is, he said, sometimes they just don't have the skills. And then he said the third one becomes actually adapting to the point where now you're getting paid to do this. It's no longer, he, he told me this really interesting story about writing for Wired. 
And they're like, we want you to write in this specific way. And he was like, oh, I thought you wanted me to write in however I you know, was writing. So he had to learn how to adapt. And I wonder, in your own experience, uh, what did you find to be the challenges? How did you navigate them? And, and what would you tell other people uh, who are, are pursuing careers where, you know, I mean, this is, this is bad advice, right? So <laughs> um, I'm not adaptable. You know, uh -huh. I'm, I'm. I'm a nice person. I, I really am nice, but I mean, kind of with my work, I'm kind of an obstinate asshole, you know? And like in my first writing gig, it was for like ZDNet or CNET or one of those early things. I got some column that I was allowed to write weekly stuff on the net. And it was like three to hundred or five hundred bucks a column, which was decent. And they, uh, uh, after I did three or four of them, they said, "Oh, you know, you're going to get more clicks because they were already starting to count clicks. You're going to get yeah. more clicks if we start your piece, you know, like this rather than like that." And it looked so, uh, or write about this rather than that. And I was just like, "Screw that!" You know, I, goodbye. And it was like, wow, they made one. Uh, from there, they made one request, and I was, I was like, "Bye." <laughs> uh -huh. So that's that's a mark of inadaptability. But on the other hand, uh, my inadaptability is what is what makes me valuable. My inadaptability was being the person at the beginning of the net to say, "No, no, this way is wrong. The whole dot com thing. This is bad. Don't yeah. put ads on websites. This is not going to work. No, Netscape, don't go public." You know, and getting laughed at and yelled at and losing work and all that, but staying so true to my uh uh you know, to my truth mm -hmm. about what this was. Um, yeah. you know, by, by living and working from my values, um, I feel like if you can really hold on to that, you know, through a few storms, mm -hmm. um, then eventually they come and they say, okay, you know, I was the guy whose book got canceled because I insisted that the internet was going to happen. And the publisher thought the internet was going to be over by 1993 when the book came <laughs> out, right? I was the guy that that got laughed out of out of so many editorial uh, meetings for talking about this idea I had called viral media. You know mm -hmm. that that media was going to start spreading laterally like a virus through through new avenues of contagion. You know until you know, and I write that book, which is also kind of derided uh, by many at the time. Until eventually, you know, after the tipping point and Facebook and Instagram, and people go, "Oh, I get it, right? This is viral media, isn't it?" So you, you know, if you're right enough, then eventually yeah. that obstinance kind of pays off. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean, it's true. Those those first years. Those first years are scary. You got to take certain kinds of risks. I mean, again, it was a wealthier world in the nineties, yeah. even though we were in the recession and no one had jobs. It was a different, you could, you could get by on less. You could uh -huh. get a job temping at night, typing for a law firm, you know, for 40 bucks an hour, typing depositions of guys who lost their hands in printing machines or whatever it was. And, and you'd have all day to think and write and do what you actually do i think it's much more precarious now yeah. but 
Sorry. you know, living through those times, you know, being able to do that, uh, uh, you know, and live on 8,000 bucks a year and keep trying, trying, banging, throwing stuff against the wall until something happens. Um, that, you know, it takes a certain kind of a madness, I guess, to, to submit to that. Yeah. Yeah, I remember talking to my friend Jonathan Fields about this. He said, you know, because I graduated business school April 2009, and I told him, I said, you know, like most people, the reason they end up on this path is because they find themselves disillusioned with some, you know, corporate job or whatever. And I was like, I think I got fired from every damn job I ever had. So to me, I was like, there was no alternative. <laughs> That's the only reason uh, I think I actually yeah. progressed. I would buy that, though, as, as a truth. I mean, no. um. I think I think that's real. That 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 your 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 incompatibility with that was was not some temperamental inability to do what was necessary, mm-hmm. but was you know your values speaking through. There's a certain point at which, well, wait a minute, um, what this company's doing is incompatible. I mean, with with your values, if you're if you don't consciously stand against it, then you're going to unconsciously sabotage yourself. You know, and and once that subtext and text of your personality can meet, uh-huh. um, you know, great great things can happen. On the other hand, though, there are great people living with integrity, unbendingly, you know, and have been trained and have virtuosity at what they do, and are, you know, stuck in the Starbucks mm-hmm. for their for their income. It's it's. There is a certain amount of of luck in this, you know, and it's it's I won't call it grace. You know, grace would suggest that, you know, God rewards those who are somehow deserving of it. It feels way more random than this to me. It feels like some people unjustly don't get the kind of recognition they deserve. And then after enough years of that, they get kind of screwed up or mean or neurotic. And then, then there's a way of justifying it. You know, then you meet them and you go, Oh, well, I could see why they're not getting any talks yeah. or books. It's because they're crazy. Um, but that's because of what they've had to endure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I am always mindful of the fact that I feel like every one of these conversations that I have with a person like you, uh, and all the ideas we share is like, okay, these are relevant to people who are in a place of privilege. If you're a person who's literally working three jobs to put a meal on the table. I don't think you give a shit about meaning and purpose. Right. I had the luxury of Mount Sinai Hospital, where my dad worked, gave me a scholarship for college that would pay for the tuition of my college or graduate school as long as I didn't take a year off. Isn't that weird? Mm. Um, That was the rule. So I couldn't take a gap year or anything like that. So I went from college to Cal Arts, where I got an MFA in theater. And then I was like, well, shoot, if I stop going to school, I'm going to stop getting that money. So then I went to AFI, American Film Institute, and got another degree in film. (laughs) And it was like, all right, I I just can't do any more school. I got to go in the world. But it was a self-funding experience. And when I was out of school, I only had to earn enough money to keep myself alive. Yeah. $300 a month rent, which my part, how much I had to pay for our three-person apartment, and lentils and rice. And I'm mm-hmm. done. 
right? So that's not a heck of a lot of money to have to earn. And I had skills. I went to film school. I could do video editing. So I would go in two or three days a week and edit fashion videos and haircutting videos for these LA fashion companies. And the rest of the time, just bang out articles for free for magazines that didn't pay and zines and you know, it gave me time. If I had come out of school with $200,000 debt or a kid or a, a, a parent to, you know, to, to take care of or a, a restaurant to busboy at, um, who knows? I wouldn't have had those two or three years to uh, be available to mm-hmm. what, was, what was happening. So I made probably what most people would consider a completely insane decision. I was like, you know what? I'll just delay paying off the student loan debt to hell with it. I already know where that corporate path ends. I was like, if I even, I was like, this is basically going to be me working jobs and me get fired from the rest of my life to keep trying to service this debt. Uh, so, you know, I, I think this is actually almost a perfect segue to start talking about your work. And I didn't necessarily want to start with education in particular, but um, correct me if I'm wrong, having read your books, uh, my sense is, that you know, I've read Present Shock, I've read Team Human, that you are really interested in the relationship between human beings and technology and how it shapes our lives. That seems to be the thread yeah. done in your work. I mean, I would guess so. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but it goes, uh, it's probably more about, you know, like mediating technologies mm-hmm. than tech, yeah. you know, it, itself. So, I really think about it. I mean, I don't really know that much about like the steam engine and uh, you know what I mean? Like how tech itself or the invention of the wheel and Mm -hmm. the cart and then, you know, the horse and buggy or the chariot. I mean, and it's all interesting, but I do know a whole lot more about say the invention of speech Mm -hmm. or text or the printing press and the radio and television. And, so I, I, it would be kind of limited. So it would probably be a little bit more human beings in their communications media okay. than humans and uh, technology. Yeah, than technology itself. Although tech and tech and media, they're they're intertwined. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's hard hard yeah. to quite tell the difference between I mean, them. But yeah, that's definitely the common thread. And then looking at you know are, are they when when does a medium get to the point where we forget that it's a medium that it naturalizes itself mm-hmm. and that that when that medium naturalizes it, itself its affordances get naturalized as well yeah. so when central currency is a medium and when it naturalized itself to the point that people think that central currency just is money mm-hmm. rather than a kind of money what does that mean it means we accept living in a debt based economy it means we accept the concept of employment and working for people and you know what i mean it, it 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 means we accept the idea that a nation is what creates the money i mean it's it's mm-hmm. just it's a weird uh, 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 an amount of stuff you know and and mm-hmm. so yeah from the time i was little and this is why when you said when did you start when I started on this path was when I was watching um, the Mary Tyler Moore show as a little kid. And Mary Tyler Moore, she moved from one apartment to the other. And when she moved from one apartment to the other, the door on the set moved from one side of something to the other, something like that. It was like the set changed and it changed the, the timbre of the show. And I got to this weird 
place where I was thinking about the difference between sitcoms where the door is on the right of the screen and the door is on the left of the screen and how this makes this kind of profound change in the way they're perceived and whether they're right, right-wing values or left-wing values or establishment or anti-establishment, divorced or not divorced. And I started to sort of analyze all that and I was like, oh, I've gone to some strange place. I mean, it was before I was a kid. I hadn't done any drugs, but mm-hmm. it was like, all right, I'm no longer watching television. I'm now watching the television. You know, I've gone meta on TV. And what is that? And and where else can I go meta on things? And what is the value of going meta, of doing these sort of lateral comparisons and pattern recognition? And mm-hmm. so then I've just, I've gravitated towards spaces where this pattern recognition is somehow valuable. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a perfect segue into talking about Team Human. And, and uh, it's funny because I thought I would want to do this in linear order. But now that I have you know your highlights in front of me, I think this was one of the quotes that really struck me. And I'd never thought about it this way. You said, television was widely credited as the single biggest contributor to desocialization of the American landscape, the decline of national clubs and community groups, and a sense of isolation plaguing people until the internet. Right. Plaguing the suburban frontier. That is until the internet. And I, I thought that was such an interesting comment, particularly because the internet has made it possible for people like you and I to have this conversation. Uh, it's made both of our careers possible. And so I wonder, uh, one, just, you know, can you expand on that? I mean, that, that sounds like we're in a real mess, like we're on the verge of a crisis here. We're not on the verge of a crisis. We're we in a crisis. In, yeah. I mean, honestly, whatever you think right wing or left wing or, or populist or not, Look at our political landscape. Look at our presidency. Look at we've 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 elected. We haven't only elected a reality TV producer to be our president, but we've asked for our reality to be uh, constructed for us in the manner of reality television. Yeah. In other words, we don't care what's going on in the real world anymore. Just cut it together to tell the story that I'd like. To be told. And you can do that with The Bachelorette, you know, or something, but you can't do that with the real world. There's there's pain and suffering and stuff, you know, but that's where we're at. So yeah, it it yeah. it's a big deal. And it's funny because the kind of stuff we used to be upset about, you know, when television was taking over, about, you know, it was it was, you know, kind of locking down the American dream or promoting consumerist values or the selfishness of McDonald's commercials and you, you're the one. And, you know, that that was what we were concerned about. Um, That now we're no longer concerned about people's selfishness so much as their very coherence, Mm -hmm. you know, their ability to maintain a thought over more than five seconds at a time. (laughs) And then what does that mean if someone can't think out a thought for more than five seconds. You know, what does it mean if people are going to be operating from the amygdala, from the reptilian brainstem, Mm -hmm. you know, for a majority of the day does, is democracy possible in that kind of environment? And it's probably not. So then what do we do? How do we replace democracy and what do we replace it with? Or do we try to recover, you know, from that and, and, and educate people so they can think again and, how do we engender compassion and uh, uh, some long-term thinking? It, these are these are real issues. I mean, not, I mean, the way the internet did it. Now we all we all know this. You know, we all know that that 
our social media feeds are embedded with the addictive algorithms of Las Vegas slot machines that, mm-hmm. you know, that there's entire departments at Stanford University dedicated to things like captology, which is, you know, how to um, make technologies that uh, influence human behavior in particular ways. How do you get people to do stuff mm-hmm. by flashing screens at them in certain ways? Um, you know, we're there. Um, so, you know, we, you know, television may have been the backdrop for an influential form of, of, of advertising, but the internet is, the is the manipulation itself it's you know we're entering into programs that are optimized to you know to do nothing other than change our behavior uh-huh. and extract our value that's you know that's a weird place we've come to Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
absolutely. Well, I mean, one of the things you've said is we live in a bounty of communication technologies at our disposal. Uh, our culture is composed more of meditated experiences than of directly lived ones, yet we are also more alone mediated. and atomized yeah. than, oh, mediated uh, experiences than directly lived ones, yet we are also more alone and atomized than ever. Our most advanced technologies are not enhancing our connectivity, but thwarting it. And, and this really struck me because, uh, you know, when Cal Newport's book, Digital Minimalism, came out the month before I decided to test his theory and say, you know what, I'm going to take all of January off of social media. One of my friends uh, met me for dinner and he said, you seem a lot happier. Uh, and I said, you know, I said I, I was trying to figure out what the pattern was. And I, I'd even looked over, you know, the last year of my life. And I realized uh, because of the fact that my sister was getting married in February, I was spending a lot of time with my family. And most of my interactions with people were taking place in person. And I, I started, and this is something that I actually genuinely, I'm going to use the gyroscope app, ironically, to measure, you know, what are my mood scores on the days when I have human contact versus on the days that um, I'm spending more time isolated. So I, I wonder, so, so you know, we, we, this is just so normal for us. I mean, if you have billions of users using Facebook every day. Is there a way out of this mess? Yeah. I mean, sure there is. There's always a way. You know, will we find it? Probably not. <laughs> but the way, yeah, is is to to stop. You know, it it's I mean to start, I mean, you know, you do what the what the 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 Jews of the desert did, you know, give yourself a Sabbath. Mm -hmm. You know, start with, you know, one day a week where you don't use any of this stuff. I mean, and then if that's really, really hard, figure out a way to build uh, 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 to build your life, even if you have to build your whole life around the idea that there's going to be one day a week that you're not using these technologies, and that's going to be interesting too. So even if you like, whatever, you Tinder for everyone that you meet, so you're going to have to Tinder on Friday for mm -hmm. the person that you get to see on Saturday, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and whatever you do on Saturday, it's going to be stuff that you're going to be okay with. If you don't make Instagram pictures of it, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> what, what, is there something worth doing that, you know, if it's not going to have uh, an Instagram thing, mm -hmm. you know, uh, hopefully, but, but it does, it does kind of change things. I mean, if you take it to the extreme and you decide, look, I'm not even going to get in a car on, on, this one day off a week. I'm just going to go to places that are that are walking distance. Um, you're going to start finding out things about your neighborhood that you might not have known, you know, or, or realized for a long time. There's nowhere to walk to. That the parks are gone. That you know they they put up a parking lot. Hey, um, and and that could then make you decide. Well, now I want to be on my local uh, zoning board mm -hmm. and get my neighborhood zone for parks and good things rather than just more of this crap. So I think that that taking a little bit of time, uh, 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 whether it's every day, one seventh of your day, one seventh of your week, one seventh of your month, um, for a sabbatical where you can uh, uh, extract yourself from this uh, uh, manufactured landscape yeah. and experience the real one, um, it does it 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 brings back coherence and it helps you recalibrate. You know, the, the technologies we're using are designed to decalibrate us because if you're unsettled and decalibrated, you're easier to manipulate. You know, what if you spend time with real people and look in their eyes and sit around, you get recalibrated and then everything changes. So yeah, it's still possible. 
Yeah. You know, people could decide they don't want to eat meat anymore and they only want to have one kid instead of three. Um, that would be enough to turn around climate change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I it's funny to, to to hear you talk about this. And it's interesting because I think we share a lot of viewpoints. Like I, I started to see that, wait a minute, we're living in an illusion of reality. Uh, I said we're, we're literally making our assumptions about people's lives based on one twenty fourth of who they are. It's like this is the version of me that I've uploaded to the internet, and I'm like, wow, we are already living in the matrix. Yeah, and it was weird. I I met this woman at a uh, a Team Human Live event, and she's been doing all this. She was like a dancer, but also she went to like Columbia and got like a PhD in neuro something or other, you know, brain body and all that. Um, super educated, and she has done all this research into figuring out what's happening to people's brains who are using these things. And she feels like now she has the knowledge to really inform people in a real way about, um, and to be, to be something of an expert in this, but she has zero online social, uh, social media footprint. Mm -hmm. You can't Google her. So if you can't Google her, she can't get work. She can't. In other words, we've, she's here to tell us why we have to get off the net, but if she's not on the net, she can't reach any of us. Uh, and that's a weird, that's a weird place, you know, to have gotten. You can't even get a book contract now if you don't have oh, yeah. an online following, a blog or something. Absolutely. I mean, I just wrote a, I published a post today called What It Takes to Go from Blog to Book Deal in 2019. And like a massive section of it was about the importance of your platform. Right. Because you're no longer, I mean, this is the thing, it's the same in music. You're no longer selling your book to the publisher. You're selling your audience mm -hmm. to the publisher. And that's weird. It's really hard. I mean, wow. they're still, they'll still discover, like, if you are, and and I got it, I mean, it's a, it's a racist business, but if you are a, you know, a beautiful, young, you know, Pakistani woman survivor of a refugee camp writing novels about, you know, beauty or something, um, then you could be, you know, quote unquote, discovered mm -hmm. by some well-meaning New York agent, you know, and gets you on a great virtue tour, you know, through all the bookstores. But, you know, barring that, you got to have a pre-made audience. You yeah. can't just be talented. You can't just write a great novel. You need a story uh, uh, other than the one in your book mm -hmm. to get to get out there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that's a whole landmine in and of itself. Um which actually come to think of it. So one of the things that is, has amazed me about the internet is that I believe in a lot of ways that it has democratized creativity. Um, we can go from idea to execution faster than any other time in history. You know, like when you and I were in college, you used to take hundreds of, you know, dollars and thousands of hours to do something as simple as build a website. But with that also came this just completely fragmented, uh, media landscape. And so I wonder, uh, you know, for, aspiring creatives, how they navigate that dynamic. Because I, I was thinking about this. I was like, wow, I, I, you know, even starting in 2009, I feel that I had a significant advantage over anybody who would be starting today. Yeah. With nothing. Yeah. I mean, I have an audience <laughs> of zero. I really yeah. did. Yeah. I mean, I look at me. I mean, I made it, I just made it under the wire, you know, selling a book in 1990, 91, before the net happened, I could, I wrote a 15 page book proposal that was mailed to a bunch of editors. I had no audience. I had nothing. What I had, 
And at the time, this is all you needed. What I had was a beat that nobody else had. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I discovered the, well, I mean, I knew about computers since the 70s, you know, playing with them in school, but I kind of discovered the, the the emerging internet culture of San Francisco and the Bay Area. I was the first New Yorker out there, the first New Yorker to, to see, you know, rave dances and fractals and chaos math and psychedelics and the internet and fantasy role-playing as all part of the same cultural phenomenon. You know, that something was coming, something was happening, uh, that that the internet was going to be popularized. So that was, you know, I was the first person to write articles about that and the first person to hit the the publishers with a proposal that said, this thing is coming. I'm calling it Siberia. And it's this weird hyperspatial, you know, understanding of reality. And that was enough. Mm-hmm. You know, now it's almost impossible. To have a beat like that. I mean, I guess someone could say, okay, I'm the first journalist to really cover Twitch mm-hmm. culture and professional gaming. And I let me write the book on the pro gaming scene or something, you know, maybe. But what they'd want to see is, oh, are you the preeminent blogger of the, you know, yeah. of the gaming scene? Are you, you know, they're, it's like, Everything, in in a weird way, everything has to be proven because the internet can prove something Mm -hmm. so quickly. If the internet hasn't proven it, then no one's really interested in it. Yeah. I mean, I got my book deal because I had a self-published book that just went freakishly successful for some strange reason because Glenn Beck happened to find it and liked it. Like, I don't Uh, think I would have gotten my book deal without that. Are Uh, you happy or sad that Glenn Beck liked it? You know, here's here's what I I will say about this. Um, I figured, okay, if this guy found it, Clearly, we must agree on something if he likes these ideas. And in my mind, I'm willing to engage a dialogue with somebody like that. Uh, you know, I mean, yeah, is it weird? We have next to nothing in common. I went to Berkeley, like, I mean, and you know what you know about Glenn. Uh, but what's interesting is that when I've, I've talked to people who worked for him in the past, and uh, I mean, you know, some people don't know that Gen, Glenn had a, a gay black guy who was on his staff. Um uh, and numerous, you know, people that you would never expect to be working with Glenn Beck. And, you know, the common comment was this guy is the most misunderstood man in the world. And in my mind, uh, we had at least common ground somewhere. So it was worth having that conversation. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. I got um, I did that piece. Uh, this year, uh, survival of the fittest or survival of the richest. Is that the, I, that was where I wanted to go next? Uh, yeah, about these billionaires yeah. who uh, 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 wanted advice on their fallout shelters. And, yeah, and of all people, Rush Limbaugh. If you don't know him, he's this kind of fat guy who right. does all this mean stuff about about uh, the right. Mm-hmm. Um, well, from the right, I guess. Um, very famous, yeah. like Glenn Beck size. Totally. And he read the whole piece. Yep. And did a 45-minute segment about it. Uh-huh. And he loved the piece. I mean, because he felt like what I had done was revealed that the sort of liberal tech billionaires are uh, uh, all kind of, you know, prepper, survivalist, selfish people who want to leave the rest of us behind. Mm-hmm. I mean, which is true, but I don't see them as progressive leftists. Yeah. You know, I, I think any tech billionaire that really wants to just build a shelter to leave the rest of humanity behind. That's not a progressive value. That's, yeah. that's the opposite. But I guess that was part of his point. 
that, you know, some of them probably call themselves progressives or enlightened, even though they've got these weird safety plans to, to get rid of the rest of us. Yeah, so let's talk about those safety plans, because that was literally going to be my, my very next question. You kind of read my mind. And, you know, I, you had this quote about money, which you said it was originally invented to store value and enable transactions. Money was the medium for the marketplace's primary function of value exchange. Money was the ground and marketplace was the figure. Today, the dynamic is reversed. The acquisition of money itself has become the central goal. So are you telling me that people like Zuckerberg uh, and Larry Ellison, whatever, are basically just saying, you know what, we're going to protect our money? Because I, I think there's one other thing that was really interesting in that article. It, I, I don't, correct me if I'm wrong, but the whole idea of what happens when our money becomes worthless. Right. Um, a few things. I mean... First, the billionaires that I got to talk with um, were not Bezos, Zuckerberg-level billionaires. Mm -hmm. These were mid-level billionaires, <laughs> and they're in a very different place. You know, it's like Elon Musk can build a rocket ship. Yeah, A mid-level billionaire can hope for a seat on one of those rocket ships, but they don't have the means or, you know, the wherewithal to actually build the rocket. They can't build the Mars colony. So the mid-level billionaires can't do the full-on escape. They can't do the the Ray Kurzweil upload my brain into the, you know, mainframe that Google is building for me. Mm -hmm. They they don't have that. You know, Eric Schmidt gets that. Yeah. The mid-level billionaires, they can get a uh, uh, you know, a 2 or 3 billion dollar shelter. You know, I mean, they can, they can, th there's some solutions for them. They can try to create a defensible eco farm with a force field and some, you know, uh, uh, early stage Robocop prototype guards, you know, or, or, but, but they're more, because they're realists, they're looking more at, well, what do we have now that I could do? What do, what do we have? Uh, what current technologies do we have for me to to create, you know, indoor agriculture? I'm going to need some kind of sealed environment in case it's radioactive out there. I'm going to need, you know, so they're looking sort of realistically at the most probable uh, social and and environmental crises mm -hmm. you know what what in that meeting we started to call it the event yeah. right whether it's the electromagnetic pulse or you know the social unrest or the climate change or the market crash that leads to whatever it's not a true zombie apocalypse right you don't prepare for zombies because that's just fiction but you could prepare for you know the collapse of all the nation states and hundreds of millions of people running around with diseases, but, but not totally dead trying to get your stuff. So how do you protect yourself and your, you know, 12 loved ones mm -hmm. in that situation? Yeah. So one, uh, is the way that we are currently operating even sustainable? Like, is this cur current crisis sustainable or is it going to lead us to a dark place? And, I think that it seems to me that people are very much uh, operating from a place of self-interest, at least the people that you're, you're talking about, uh, without thinking about the greater good. Yeah, it's funny. You know, um, it's not funny, but it's, it's interesting that people tend to look 
at the coming crisis from the perspective of almost like a middle-aged person accepting their personal demise, you know, and saying, okay, well, you know, individuals die, so maybe species too die. And as, as if it's almost this kind of weird boomer thing. Not that, I mean, I know we all pick on the boomers, but it's, you know, the boomers are so dominant in our cultural narrative that I feel like now that the boomers are aware of their own closing window, you know, that they're aware that they're going to die soon. Um, they can't tolerate that. It's almost as if, well, society has to die along with me. It's that Ayn Rand thing when they asked her um, if she was like afraid of death. And she said, you know, I'm not going to die. Everyone else, everything else will die. In other words, because she was so committed to her own self as source of everything that she saw her own death as the world disappearing, but her continuing, you know, <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of interesting because she's everything. Um, so I feel there's a, there's a little bit of that. And then those people in the tents are going to have to do something. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they're going to come at, they're going to come at the middle class, you know, they're going to come at, or the upper middle class, whatever it is, they're going to come at whatever our, our society's version of the Jews is and it may not be the Jews this time. It it could be some other representation of whatever's between them and the point one percent. Mm -hmm. You know, because the point one percent, those guys, they no one ever gets them. I mean, not ever. I mean, I guess you know, French Revolution happens and you grab them, but that's what they're really looking at: is how do we not be the ones who get whacked yeah. um, this time out? So a lot of parents listen to this show. Uh, oh, now they're going to be all upset. No, no. I, I, we've upset them. I well, thought no, I was no, just no, talking I, to I, you. I, actually, I don't want to upset people. <laughs> it's all going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Well, a lot of kids listen to this show as well. So I, I wonder. Oh, no, no. no the children. Yeah. Now they're going to be disappointed. And children. So what would you tell them? Like, what would you tell parents to advise their children? Like, what advice would you give to parents about what they should share with their children? Uh, oh, because play a, I'd say play a... a, a YouTube video of, of Greta from from uh, uh, Sweden. Hmm. You know the 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 girl who's who's one of the the you know poster children of the Extinction Rebellion. Hmm. You know, I would say uh, uh, you know what you can what you can look at is global. You know, look at the global climate change movement and how it understands that there are economic and cultural elements to, you know, to uh, arresting the climate change problem, that you can't just attack this one, this one issue. It's a very uh, uh, adult and comprehensive understanding of, of cultural and environmental change. Mm -hmm. And I would say then, and act as locally as you can and accept that having powerful local influence is enough that not everyone and everything has to scale that, you know, this whole podcasty thing even is like, it's pretty in its way, but I mean, I'm thinking to stop just to not crowd the space, but the, the goal that you have to do something that the whole world is going to see, um, is a false goal. You know, everyone might see your YouTube, but that doesn't have the same effect as 20 people where you live 
you know, being affected by something you've done, you know, teaching uh, literacy in your community or cleaning up a local stream or getting your your town uh, a local currency or eliminating plastic bags from local retail. And these are real things that make real differences, helping people um, give up red meat. Um, there, there are so many, there's so many terrifically constructive things you could do where you are and the reward you get will be local real-time face-to-face feedback, which actually feeds you more on an organismic level than a million likes Mm -hmm. on your YouTube. One person looking at you with their irises opening and their breathing syncing up to yours releases more oxytocin than a million new followers on Instagram. Wow. It's funny you say that because um, I picked up this habit from, I'm sure I probably heard it from somebody who told me this in an interview. So one thing I'll do every week or every other week is I will go into Starbucks, I'll give the guy a 20, I'll get my coffee and say, can you take that rest of that and pay for anybody else who's here uh, who comes after me? And that, it's one of the most interesting you know things that happens every week because I meet people, uh, you know, we chat and they're always stunned by this. And, you know, I, I always say, OK, well, one thing is on some level, this is kind of selfish because I've read about how this tends to come back. But now I see that there is even it is selfish in, in another way, too, because I'm getting what you're talking about from it. But that's that's not bad. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> but there's another self part of this is that I know I've read in book after book that, you know, when you are generous, that generosity tends to multiply in terms of what comes back to you. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a business argument I tried to make in Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, yeah. where I, I was making the argument on why you want to make your customers and suppliers wealthy. Mm-hmm. You know, that the more wealth there is in the market where you're trying to operate, the more money there is for people to spend with you. You know, that squeezing your customers and your suppliers to the point where they're uncomfortable is not a great long-term strategy for your business. And you'll actually make more money in the long run if they are happy and wealthy than if they are poor and teetering on the edge. Mm. You know, And that's the same in the world, that if you're in a town of happy people, you're going to have a happier life than if you're in a town of, of sad people. So, you know, make them happy. You know, it, it, it's, these are pretty simple principles and they're not, they don't depend on even on a new age spiritual understanding of karmic energetic retribution. Mm-hmm. You know, you can use your good old, you know, good old uh, free market uh, understandings of the world and, and you'll get to the same conclusion. Yeah. So I think the, the one sort of last area that I would like to, to ask you about is, is artificial intelligence. Uh, okay. because I, yeah. And we got to do it soon. Yeah. I'm just asking my two thirty to postpone okay. no a little bit. We'll, we'll wrap this up. Um, yeah. Uh, so I know that I've been excited by this. There have been a lot of really cool tools that are making you know things easier and faster for me. But I'm I'm also watching that that this is also going to displace a lot of people. Uh, and so I wonder, you know, based on your perspective and your experience, how do you how do you navigate that just messy uh, dynamic? I don't see AI displacing people. I see AI displacing uh, certain jobs, yeah. and there's a real difference. You know, people don't need jobs. Those are jobs. I mean, jobs are an invention of the late Middle Ages. You know, people used to create value and trade stuff, and they did as much as they needed to survive. There was subsistence. 
And I don't mean subsistence in the sense of being poor. I mean, the idea that the point of work was to accomplish something. You know, right now, the point of work is to earn money so that you can, they can justify letting you share in the spoils. Um, so the fact that, that, you know, that, that machines take some jobs doesn't have to displace any human being mm. from something. All it does is, 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 uh, uh, it can absorb some of the labor if we're even honest about it. If we don't look at, you know, using robots just as a way to externalize the actual labor to some slave somewhere else who are building the robots or digging up the mines or living with the pollution of the discarded radioactive robot debris. You know, so, so far I have not yet seen one of these new kinds of technologies that's actually more efficient um, at doing things than much more old-fashioned uh, uh, ways of operating. Wow. Um, well, I have one final question for you. I know you got to get going. And uh, this is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Unmistakable? Um, clarity. Clarity of purpose. know what i mean if you're using the word unmistakable no one's going to make a mistake if you're clear you know and if they are making mistakes about 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 you then get more clear (laughs) amazing well this has been really really eye-opening and thought-provoking and kind of a mind fuck of epic proportions oh good uh which i'm sure our listeners will absolutely love where can people find out more about you your work uh the book and everything else that you're up to i mean go to teamhuman.fm you know Team Human's easy to remember. Teamhuman.fm. It's a podcast, and you can find out about the book and all sorts of things there. Awesome. So it'll be fun. Perfect. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, sharing your story, your insights with others. This has been amazing. Thanks. All right. Thanks for doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.